The Great Exhibition of Industry of All Nations opened its doors to visitors from England and around the world on the 1st of May 1851. From its massive glistening building, aptly titled The Crystal Palace, to rows and rows of sumptuous and seemingly unending displays of materials, goods, and industrial arts from across the world, the exhibition is often called the first modern wonder of the world. William Thackeray described the exhibition as, and I quote, a most amazing medley of things, threshing machines and the Kohinoor diamond, locomotives and luxurious silks, sculpture and minerals from China, Peru and India." Close quotes. In its conception, the exhibition blended the tasks of restoring Britain's historical pride in its past and of augmenting its role as the leading industrialized nation in the world. The Great Exhibition, by all accounts, was a true spectacle, exhibiting the might and splendor of Queen Victoria's British Empire. A prime example of this intent was Joseph Paxton's iron and glass edifice that housed all of the world, almost literally. Paxton's Crystal Palace was both an ode to industrialization and a hearkening cry towards modernism. The building itself was over 108 feet high at the center, designed so to house the tall elm trees growing on the spot, making it feel all the more like a gigantic greenhouse. The impact of architecture, coupled with the wide array of displays inside it, leaves no one surprised that between May and October of 1851, when the exhibition finally closed, more than half a million visitors saw the displays spread over a ground surface area of 18 acres. Scholars have studied the Great Exhibition at various periods since its closing as an active agent and an obvious outcome of imperialism, nationalism, consumerism, local, national and global identities, and as a spectacle of power, advertising and capitalism. What remains common to these varied interpretations of the Great Exhibition is its international character and its particular role in representing imperial dominance during the mid-19th century, when Britain's power in India was at its height. In this podcast, we discuss this relationship between the metropole and the colony. We take a historical peek at the Indian exhibits, the artistic sensibilities that govern these displays, and the politics of representation and empire as seen at the India pavilions. This is the South Asia Humanities Podcast produced by Masala Histories. In this series, we discuss topical issues, key historical events, and chat with South Asian personalities. I am Deepti Murli. And I'm Manani Guha. Welcome to Episode 1, India at the Great Exhibition of 1851. The East India Company was single-handedly responsible for furthering Britain's imperial interests in South Asia, thereby cementing her position as Europe's leading colonial power. One of the prides of the Great Exhibition, its Indian displays, was Curtsy the Trading Company. The EIC, with the patronage of Indian princes, had commissioned luxury objects from Indian princely states to be displayed at the Crystal Palace. It was the first time in Britain's imperial history 
where Britain's public institutions and private commercial interest bodies like the East India Company came together, worked hand in hand to display all that was great and modern about India. Curtsy, the EIC. The East India Company, who were the only entity with trading rights in India at the time, were extremely supportive of the exhibition itself and of the India Pavilion. Not only would these display allow an opportunity to exhibit the riches of Britain's empire in the East, but they would be a tribute to Britain's imperial might and a testament to the achievements of the British Empire in India. The East India Company had a vested interest in displaying Indian aesthetics of refinement and opulence and aligned them with Victorian morals. It had been less than 100 years previously when Edmund Burke had drawn the attention of British Parliament towards the corruption that he felt all the East India Company officials were guilty of in India. That accusation had clearly not died down with time. The 19th century was rife with anti-EIC sentiments and Indian ambition was seen as built on corruption, greed and with no concern for the Victorian moral code of conduct. One could say that through the success of the Indian pavilions, filled with objects designed and created by the superior hand of the Indian artisans at the Great Exhibition, the East India Company would have liked to transform these views, and it certainly did to some extent. The Indian displays had a significant effect on the Victorian public and amongst designers, pro-imperialists and within the arts and crafts movement. It led the Victorian art reformer and architect Owen Jones reflecting on the Indian section in an attempt to formulate correct and good principles of design. What were these marvelous objects on display in the Indian section? Let's start with the location of the India Court. It was situated immediately to the west of the crystal fountain, a huge centerpiece made of four tons of pink crystal glass placed at the intersection of the nave and the transepts. The Indian pavilions divided across the central nave occupied the pride of place as one of the most viewed spaces in the entire building. Displayed within these pavilions were gorgeous embroidered shawls and intricately woven carpets along with weaponry, clothes and sundry furniture. The corners of one of the pavilions housed a large display case filled with jewels and vessels made of precious metals and stones. Some of the jewellery displayed were made by the famed Swarnakar goldsmiths of Sindh. Other items were those presented to Queen Victoria which were loaned by her to the exhibition. These included the centerpieces for the two pavilions. On one side of the nave stood a stuffed elephant on which was mounted an ornate double-seater howdah, one of the two splendid objects received by the Queen in the previous year from Nawab Nazim of Murshidabad. On the pavilion on the opposite side, there stood within a plush decorated tent an ornately carved chair and footstool made of ivory gifted to the Queen for the occasion by Maharaja of Travancore Uttram Tiranal Martandavarma. Surrounding the ivory chair were many different displays, furniture made of ebony, ivory veneered side tables, a bejeweled hookah, many different types of carpets and shawls, and even a stick figure sporting the costume of a royal Indian servant. 
The opulence of these displays cannot be quite explained in the short podcast, but for those of you who are interested in seeing what these exhibits look like, we have provided links to watercolors painted at the exhibition as well as linked to our sources on our website masalahistories.com. Aside from the pavilions, one object from India was displayed on the nave a little east of the transepts. This was the Kohinoor, the fabled diamond belonging to Ranjit Singh of Punjab, now in the possession of the Queen of the British Empire. Contemporary accounts discuss the crowds that thronged the gilded cage in which the diamond was displayed. One American visitor described it as a little overvoid module, less in size than half an ordinary apple, and which might easily be mistaken for a lump of flint glass, carelessly dropped in a glass house. The same gentleman exclaimed that the diamond was valued at 2 million sterlings, and like any true American, he converted it into dollar amounts as $10 million. The Kohinoor could, at that price, easily build 14 crystal palaces. Along with these marvelous jewels, textiles, and royal objects, there were also displays of the tools used to make these esteemed objects, and many commentators and reviewers found it necessary to mention that the marvels of the India pavilions were a wonder in itself for having been made at the hands of potters and weavers and furniture makers with nothing but the chisel and the hammer and the anvil. The displays particularly ignited visitors' imagination of the oriental land of riches and splendor, indeed of princes and treasures. Consequently, as many scholars have commented, what was carefully designed to be overlooked or ignored was the absence of anything that would bring middle-class urban South Asians from India's commercial centers to mind, where at this time, the idea of the Raj had started meeting with resistance. While finally the British with the defeat of the Punjab in 1849 had seemingly wrested dominance in the subcontinent, their power was not absolute, or rather accepted as absolute. The exhibitors did not want to highlight those portions of imperial rule. Rather, they were keen to present India as the jewel of the British Empire. Indeed, the Indian pavilions that covered over 24,000 square feet in area was nowhere marked separately. Instead, the exhibits were pegged under the larger banner of the British Empire and the goods in it were not exhibited as Indian but as British. Even the layout of the exhibits was marked to show the empire as a unified body. While Britain and her colonies took up the western side of Crystal Palace, foreign countries from France to Russia, Prussia and United States occupied the eastern side. Commentators, including the Queen, highlighted the sense of unity, of seeing the world as a friendly conglomeration of countries and the exhibition itself as a space of noble rivalry and healthy competition. What was not said, but definitely experienced, was the expanse and might of the British Empire. As historian Peter Hoffenberg points out, in the newly industrialized world, for many, the exhibition was an example of the centrality of Britain. If England was the sun, then all other nations were planets revolving around it.
The 19th century served as a watershed period in the history of Great Britain, both as a colonial power and as a leading economic power in the world. This period saw a massive explosion in the arena of manufacturing for Great Britain. Between 1821 and 1830, there was a steady increase in the value of imports that rose from £30 million to £46 million. Duties upon the import of raw materials from the colonies like raw silk, cotton were taken off, much to the great advantage of manufacturing industries in Britain. Technology and manufacturing were not the only means to power and wealth. The Corn Laws that imposed restrictions and tariffs on imported grains was repealed in 1846. This opened the country to further free trade of grains and commodities. Raw material was collected in the colonies at an enormously cheap rate, brought back to England to be manufactured into commodities and then to be sold back to the colonies again at a much higher price. All these achievements in trade, industry and science were highlighted at the Great Exhibition, all of which was possible because of Britain's colonial conquest. The exhibition's prime benefactor, Prince Consort Albert, was steadfast in his belief that this event was not about artistic merit. Hence, the displays were divided into four categories, minerals and raw materials, industrial machinery and mechanical inventions, manufactures and fine arts, which included architecture and sculpture, but excluded paintings. The Great Exhibition in London displayed the fineries of India in the most unprecedented ways. It went directly against James Mill's depiction of India as a vacant and stagnant place, with a civilization that was steadily declining. James Mill had decided that commodities coming out of India were degenerate in character, lacking any of the finesse that Victorian Britain had modeled itself on. The objects designed in India, which were a part of the display, told a very different story. A story of softest silks, coolest ivory, and glittering gold. The exhibits themselves elicited positive response from their fabulous artistry. Many saw them as marvels and the mark of immense dexterity of Indian artisans. Some even melancholically thought that in industrializing, the, the British had lost a great deal in the sphere of art. Publisher Jay Castles, illustrated exhibitor, remarked that the Indian exhibits carried visitors back to the infancy of time. Here, continuity from generation to generation, imparting down the craft techniques of the potter and the weaver and the carpenter, as well as their craft implements, were directly amplifying the colonial trope of ageless India, a subcontinent with a glorious history that had remained in the past and which had passed the mantle of progress and invention onto Britain, which was its future. India was presented as a familiar face, opulent, splendid, timeless, a contradiction, but a contradiction that the average British gentleman could peruse and make sense of. What happened to the objects after the Great Exhibition? Many of the objects were bought by the newly founded Kensington Museum, which is the modern-day Victorian Albert Museum in London, from a Parliament sum of £5,000 allotted for the purpose of which £1,500 was spent for buying from the India pavilions. 
the stuffed elephant upon which one of the two howdahs was displayed went back to the Saffron Walden Museum from where it had been brought by boat and road to the Crystal Palace. Many others remain in the collections of the Royal Collection Trust, including the magnificent ivory throne which Queen Victoria later made her chair of state when she took the title of the Empress of India. One of the critiques leveled at the exhibition, most prominently by socialists of the time, was the near-complete erasure of the labor force that were involved in the process of making the Crystal Palace and all the objects that it contained. Prices which were given at the end of the exhibition was presented to the commissioners as opposed to those who worked on the displayed objects. This critique is more starkly evident when studying the Indian pavilions. We know very little about the artists who made these beautiful objects. None of their names found mention in the pavilions or elsewhere. But from the example of the ivory throne, we can say that at least the makers of the throne, Kochagunya and Nelakandan, were rewarded generously by the Maharaja of Travancore, who himself received a letter of honour signed by the Queen even before Crystal Palace closed its doors. For however India was represented at the Crystal Palace, one thing can be assured. The India pavilions put the arts and crafts of India in the spotlight like never before. Indeed, the representation was not of India or Indians, but of the empire and its crown jewel. Yet, when people described the contents and the wonder of experiencing the displays of the India court, it was always about the East. Charlotte Bronte described the sentiment in her diary as, it may be called a bazaar or a fair, but it is such a bazaar or a fair as Eastern genie might have erected. The Great Exhibition changed the way India was perceived by the West and especially Great Britain. It came to be seen less as a dependency and more as the gift that keeps on giving. The exhibition spawned a new era of international colonial displays and everywhere that Britain was represented, from Australia to the United States, India continued to shine as the jewel in the British crown. You're listening to the South Asia Humanities podcast produced by Masala Histories. We have more resources on the Great Exhibition of 1851 in our related blog post. For more information, please visit www.masalahistories.com podcast. We would also love to hear from you. So if you have suggestions and comments, please email them to contactmasalahistories at gmail.com. You can also follow us on our brand new Facebook page. We are on Twitter and Instagram as well at Masala Histories. Thank you for listening to Episode 1, India at the Great Exhibition of 1851.